Coming to you direct from the heart of New York City, all the way to wherever you are, you're listening to the VIP Jazz Wall Report. There's a saying that when you're up in life, your friends get to know who you are. But when you're down in life, you get to know who your friends really are. This show is going to be about relationships in your world, starting with yourself. But it's not your typical show, and you are going to get something out of it. So stick around and get comfortable. If you look around your world today, it's all about me, myself, and I. So many books, magazines, almost every ad on TV is about getting a better body, looking beautiful, taking care of yourself, etc., etc. You know what I mean. What the previous generation called selfish. We in this generation call self-development. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but it's becoming a little bit obsessive. In fact, it seems that the relationship one has with oneself overrides everything else. And then we're so busy managing ourselves in this pursuit of a higher level of being that maybe, maybe we forget those around us. In a world where everyone is so busy attending to themselves, how does one get to form a relationship? In fact, what is a relationship anymore? What is its value? What is its purpose? Because I look around me and I see people being friendly but not friends in the true sense of the word. Well, we're in luck, maybe even blessed, because our guest today is going to enlighten us about this dilemma that exists in our world today. He's written a book called The People Factor and shows us how to build great relationships and end bad ones in order for us to achieve our divine purpose. I must admit, though, I was skeptical at first because I thought I knew everything about relationships. I consider myself a practical and and a kind of pragmatic guy, but in fact, my philosophy, actually, about death is so much so that I want to go to heaven for the weather, but I want to go to hell for the company, <laughs> only because it's going to be one heck of a party. But as I read the book, it actually started to make sense. The book made me examine myself, made me reassess my personality, my character, and in a funny sort of way, it actually increased my self-confidence because it allowed me to raise my standards in the way I assess those around me without having a sense of guilt or fear. And it reconfirmed to me that all relationships I enter into going forward should have a purpose. This book, The People Factor, has been personally endorsed by Joel Osteen. And our guest today is a pastor of one of the fastest-growing churches in the country. He's been featured on Fox Business, The Wall Street Journal, Forbes, and his main claim to fame will now be this show, The Vip Jazzwell report. It's an honor and pleasure to welcome Pastor Van Moody. Welcome to the show, Pastor Van. Thank you, Vip. It's been an honor uh, to just meet you and be with you on the show today. Thank you, sir. My show, based on three themes that I think my audience deserve to hear in return for the time they give us. And those three things are credibility, logic, and emotion. So let's start with credibility, because logic and emotion are going to follow as the show progresses. Let me ask you about your credibility. You wrote People Factor, but what in your life gave you the experience and the credentials to be able to write on such a topic? Well, one of the things uh, that establishes my credibility is the work that I've done with the church that I serve. We started with just 20 families, and in seven years, uh, we've grown uh, that church from 20 families to well over 9,000 people. And if you don't do that with just charisma and creativity, you have to understand people and how to relate to them effectively in order to maintain that level of growth and that level of effectiveness. And beyond that, the work that I've done serving on the board of Joel Olstein's Champions Network has been to really help lead people and leaders mm-hmm. uh, and help them to be effective at some of the greatest churches across the country to increase their impact. And you can't do that without empowering them to handle relationships well. And I've also done it at an international level with the work that I've done for Dr. John Maxwell's leadership organization, I had the great opportunity to train 
not only pastors but business leaders uh, in the region of Japan and spent uh, quite some time with them building their leadership capacity. And once again, it's about empowering them to understand people and to win with people so that they can be effective leaders in their sphere of influence. So what's missing in the world today? What do you see that made you write this book? I mean, you must have had hundreds of topics to think about, but you chose this one. What's missing? Well, you know, one of the things that for me is I'm a voracious reader, and even in my own life of leadership, I began to experience things uh, for which I couldn't find a book that would speak to the issues at hand. I wrote The People Factor in many ways because I, I wrote the book that I wish someone would have given me about 25 years ago. I think there are a number of books in the sphere of relationships that deal with one dynamic of relationships, marriage or single or even business relationships. But I really think that what's missing in this conversation about relationships is that we're not taught how to navigate them properly. We we believe, or I think what's uh, pushed to a number of people is that because we're in relationship mm-hmm. um, with our family and significant others or friends or coworkers, that that implies that we know what we're doing. You know, in many ways, we stress test cars, we check the integrity of airplanes and reinforce the foundations of the tallest skyscrapers, but when it comes to testing the quality of our relationships or the building blocks of our family and communities and even our nations, in many ways, we're still flying by the seat of our pants. And those relationships are so critical because they're tied to the ability for us to achieve our dreams. They're tied to the quality of our life. And I've learned, I've learned that people who are tied to your destiny, they'll either help you or hinder you from moving forward in it. And if you don't know how to handle those relationships accordingly, they could either make or break your life. And so I kind of wanted I wanted the people factor to be a guide uh, to helping people distinguish between destiny people and distractors from their destiny. And I wanted to help people navigate through kind of the rough relationship waters that all of us encounter, that I've encountered in my life. And as I said before, I had no point of reference. I had no one book to help me through it. And so it was through all of that uh, that I ended up really feeling like this book was needed in that space that's missing in relationships. Well, this book's definitely different because, as I said earlier, we live in a world of becoming a better me. And your book is refreshing in that it's about the relationships around me. However, if I was to spin it, Is the book still about me? Because it's about using others to my benefit, which will make my world a better place. So is this really a book about me again? I I think it is. I think it's a a book about uh, me, but it's also a book about others. The People Factor is is really a book about others as they relate to us. Mm -hmm. So the answer to your question is that it's both. You know, there's a fine line there, but there is a distinction. And the book helps us to kind of peel back the layers of ourselves as well as identify how all of the relationships that we have, how it affects us. And so it starts with helping us to focus on others, but the end result is that we are able to be better individuals as a result. Now, you start the book with a great quote, and that quote is, He who walks with the wise grow wise, but a companion of fools suffer harm. Now, here's the challenge. In order to surround myself with greatness, how can I manage to get into, say, the existing inner circle of such people? You know, one of the most important things that we have to do is to demonstrate a capacity for healthy relationships. 
meaning that you can't position yourself as a parasite. You've got to position yourself as a friend. Bishop Jakes has been a great influence in my life, uh, and I think back often to how we met and how we began that relationship. He's a guy that has accomplished a tremendous amount, not only in Christendom but in Hollywood and uh, in the book space and media sphere. But our relationship started not with me coming to him with my hand out. Our relationship started with me demonstrating a willingness to serve him and some of the things that he was trying to accomplish. And that's what I mean when I tell people that you've got to position yourself as a friend and not a parasite. You've got to come to them uh, as a servant instead of a taker. And you have to sort of determine what's your value to him as much as what you know his value is to you. Yeah, because the majority of individuals who are you know, high-level people are doing things significantly in their sphere, they have a number of people who are pulling at them and are trying to get to know them only because they want to be a taker. What they don't have is they don't have an abundance of people that are willing to serve and add value to what they're trying to accomplish. And so the moment that you position yourself that way, instead of a parasite, you initially uh, kind of raise your head above the fray and position yourself to be noticed. Now, I read your book from cover to cover. It took me about five, five and a half hours. Great read. And I want to get some guidance, okay? Sure. So your first chapter, you go right in saying that you have to be yourself. And here's my challenge. And let me give you an example where I did that, and it doesn't work. Now, my wife always gets scared every time I open my mouth because she knows that I say what I think, and I don't hold back. Uh, But it seems that speaking truthfully and with a level of common sense in today's world is viewed as being intolerant or being politically incorrect. And here's what happened last weekend. Uh, My wife's friend came over last uh, on on a Saturday and we were all going to go out for dinner. And she asked me if she was looking fat because that's how she felt. (laughs) Now, my wife told me never to use the word fat. But at the same time, I had to answer the question that was asked of me. So this is what I said. I said, you're looking rather heavy for a land mammal. <laughs> and, and then she started to get upset. Now, I'm going to say, I was going to say that she looked like the centerfold of Thick and Juicy, but I held back. So, you see, <laughs> if I am who I am, which is honest, then being who I am doesn't work for me. Um, it teaches me something that people don't like to hear the truth. I can be very polished or I can be a rough diamond, but being me is not in everyone's best interest. So, Pastor Van, I've sinned. Guide me. Is being me practical? Well, funny. It's uh, <laughs> that, that's funny. First of all, but you know, Vip, I think the most important thing is it depends on your intentions. I think the question that you've got to settle is: Do you want to shock the other person, or do you really want to connect with them? And with that understanding, if we kind of get behind the letter of the law and get to the spirit of what I really deal with in that chapter, the question really is about when is it wise to reveal yourself? Mm-hmm. And if your goal is to connect, then it's important to remember that being yourself in many ways is a slow reveal. And what I mean by that is keeping it real. You know, we live in a day and time where everybody says that, particularly young people. I want to keep it real. Right. Keeping it real is about approach, but being real is about authenticity. You read my book, and you know that many of the concepts in the people factor are grounded in Scripture. I'm not overly preachy. I don't proselytize. But I, I do think that there are some nuggets in the Bible that I use as kind of jumping-off points. 
And, you know, the Bible at its purest level is, in my opinion, a book about relationships, and it's filled with stories and promises and wisdom. But there's a particular verse that I think speaks to this issue of, is it safe to really be you? And it from Proverbs 29 and 11, and it just says this, a fool vents all of his feelings, but a wise man holds them back. And what that says to me is that there is a time and place for everything, uh, and you've got to be uh, very cautious, not necessarily with what you say, but even w- when you say it. And so this notion of being real is really about being able to be transparent so that you can build real connections with people, but it doesn't give you a license to be brash or to demean them. And that's why I say that it's really about authenticity and not so much about approach. I think what we do is we confuse approach with authenticity. That's when we get into the whole sphere of is it politically correct I can say something a certain way and still authentically be myself. Or I can say something in a way that is true, but I shut down the capacity to connect with that individual. And so this notion of being real and being yourself is about connection and not just uh, how we say what we say. So not taking things literally, not not just black and white, it's just the shades of gray. So yeah. being flexible with the truth a little. I should have yeah. said, oh, you're easy to see. yeah you know one of the things is saying that she was pretty large for a land animal um is going to shut her down uh because you know she's going to take it offensively which i'm sure she probably did on some level uh and it was true it was true and you were being authentic uh but i think what we've got to do if we're going to be real is to be ourselves but in being ourselves make sure that we're careful to connect with people and to not say things in a way that's going to ultimately shut them down and to build walls of disconnect between us. Okay, so you talked about the Bible. You made reference to that. Now, you personify the cross brilliantly in the book, and I'll I'll, I'll never forget that. So tell our listeners what the cross symbolizes to you. Yeah, I think the cross is significant, uh, and I think it's significant for reasons that are beyond what a lot of individuals who are believers discuss. I think the challenge of the church is that we have focused on the vertical beam of the cross, which in many ways symbolizes what Christ came to do, which is to reconcile a a lost world to God. But what we miss is the vertical beam of the cross. I, I really believe that the cross is one of the central symbols of the Christian faith, not because of just the vertical reality, but also because of the horizontal reality, that the cross symbolizes that Christ also came to help us effectively relate to each other. And I think that that's a part of the dialogue that we're not having in the world today because I unfortunately feel like the churches use the vertical reality of our faith as a license uh, to demean people and to build walls between people instead of also dealing with the horizontal reality of the cross that should bring us together, that should help us to better effectively relate to each other. Uh, even though we're different, even though we may not agree ideologically on everything, uh, that portion of the cross is just as vital, in my opinion, as the vertical beam. Well, you state in your book that there are no neutral relationships. What's a neutral relationship? (laughs) The notion of a neutral relationship is uh, when we think that, you know, we have these uh, casual relationships. Mm Mm-hmm that don't necessarily affect us. And when I say that, 
you know, there's no such thing as a neutral relationship. The truth is we have all, all types of relationships. But what I'm really talking about here are the kinds of relationships that impact your life. Um, there's no such thing as a relationship having neutral impact, meaning it's kind of like a, the, the carnival game. I don't know if you had this when you were growing up, but when I was growing up and we'd go to a carnival, uh, one of my favorite games was that game when you would have to swing the mallet and hit uh, the base of uh, the contraption. Uh, and it would send something flying up, and the goal was to ring the bell. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the unique thing about that game is every time you swung the mallet, uh, you maybe didn't swing it hard enough for it to always uh, ring the bell, but every time you swung the mallet, you made some kind of impact. And that's what relationships do in our life. Uh, every relationship in our life may not ring our bell, so to speak, but they do impact our lives in some way, shape, or form. We may not stress out about the opinions of certain people, or even some of the interactions that we have with the people that maybe we don't spend a lot of time with. The neutrality that I'm talking about is really with the people that are in the front row of your life. You know, your spouses, your siblings, your close friends, supervisors, coworkers. just as an example, the people that you spend time with that have the capacity to either move you forward or hold you back. Um, those are the individuals, even when we think that their opinions don't matter, they impact us on some level or another. And that's why I say that there's no such thing as a neutral relationship in those spheres. Well, religious leaders and most scriptures teach us to forgive and forget. And you know the problem with me? I don't suffer from Alzheimer's. So I can't forget, and and hence I can't forgive. Instead, I choose to forsake. You know, I've told my friends, never misunderstand my kindness and loyalty as a sign of weakness. Because if you harm me or take me for granted... Weak is not what you're going to remember me by. So in a way, are you also not advising the same philosophy of forsaking in your book? Yeah, I am. You know, in the book, I deal with the fact that there are some relationships that will have to either be constructively transitioned or they will have to end. And this notion of forgiving and forgetting involves that. You've got to have... Uh, number one, the understanding of based upon the actions of a person, should I move on, which is the forsaking? Or should I constructively transition this relationship, meaning that they don't have the same level of sway over my life that they used to have? And there are instances where you have to constructively transition it, or there are instances where you do have to say, you know what, I've got to forsake this and move on. And there, 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 there are those relationships that do on occasion require that in order for you to move forward. Forgiving, though, doesn't necessarily mean that you forget. I think we have to learn from every relationship that we encounter, and that's one of the main things that I try to stress in the book. Uh, I think too many people that go through relationships instead of growing through them, and that's a part of it. If I can forgive you, but I can learn from it as well, and that may mean that maybe I don't uh, you know, just put it behind me. I learn from it and I grow from it. Uh, but then maybe I've got to move on, which is the forsaking component. Yeah, I find it very tough to forgive. But the only thing that I try not to do is take revenge. Right. Uh, that doesn't mean I let it go in my mind. It sticks there because as a warning sign that I've been hurt. So maybe I'm overly sensitive, but... Uh, That's just generally my personal uh, viewpoint on that. But taking that forward, can a simple question, can the friend of my enemy 
be a friend of mine? Absolutely not. And the reason that I say that is because in the book I deal with loyalty, which is a really, really, really big factor in any relationship, personal, professional, even platonic. And loyalty demands selectivity, meaning that if if I hire, for an example, a person to be the CFO of uh, my business, then there is a certain level of loyalty that comes with that. But then that, that loyalty demands selectivity, meaning that they cannot parlay uh, their same level of skill set uh, with other companies or other people, enemies uh, and others. Because what I expect of them is that they're going to be loyal to me because we've entered into that level of relationship. And even from a friendship standpoint, we may not uh, verbalize it. We may not enter into a contractual agreement that spells out this, that, or the other. But the expectation that is within our connection is that you're not going to connect with my enemy, particularly if we're going to build a meaningful relationship. Well, after I finished reading your book, I hid it from my wife. (laughs) Had she found it, she would have divorced me Monday morning. Uh, and I'll tell you why. Page 27, you talk about not running on empty. Yeah. And you give 12 reasons why you should leave people. I'm going to read a few out for the listeners. And it starts like this. A relationship that depletes you is one that is a constant source of discouragement. My wife finds me discouraging. Um, is one you repeatedly try to convince yourself to stay in She's always said that may make you physically, mentally or emotionally tired after speaking to or being with a certain person taxes, your internal resources, such as your joy and peace um, is one which is in, in which you may be able to be pleasant when with the person, but later regret that time you gave to him or her and is one in which you feel a combination of excitement and a sense of dread about being with a certain person, but do it anyway. <laughs> so, I thought that was the, the you've really sort of hit on 12 key points and it really made me think because there are so many people that I have relationships with where this seems to happen consistently it's not a one off right right so but you know on a serious note in in the real world today can all relationships nourish each other I think they can. I think that that's part of the reason why, and and I think what we have to qualify is what we mean by all. Mm. Um, But I think that's a part of why the people factor is so needed. It it, it occupies a space that has been empty for a very long time. I think the point of the book is helping us to do relationships better, and what I've tried to do is to give people the skills and the tools to do that. Uh, And when we have these skills, then we have to take up the work of being intentional uh, in the relationships that we're engaged in to nourish the other and to make sure that the other nourishes us. I definitely didn't write this for your wife to divorce you, but I think it should at least raise the eyebrow and cause individuals to really go back and rediscover a work ethic that we have to bring into relationships. And it's interesting because I think in this day and time, Vip, I think we've lost that. And I think that's why so many relationships are parasitic instead of nourishing in their value. Taking that one step further about nourishment, you you state there are three kinds of people in your life, yesterday, today, and tomorrow. 
So briefly tell me, what's the significance of each and where should we place the value? Well, the most important thing that I suggest for people is that you got to place value on your tomorrow people. Now, I think you, first of all, got to understand the difference. Yesterday, people, and I'm glad you brought this up because this is a huge, uh, huge thing for me. Yesterday, people are individuals who are from your past and have a tendency to populate your past and focus on your past and keep you really bound to your past. Today, people are people who are in your life in the present, but they're only satisfied with today. They may not necessarily be people that are looking back, but at the same time, they're not people who are looking forward either. They are comfortable with where you are uh, today. But your tomorrow people, uh, their focus is definitely not on your past. Their focus it goes so far beyond today, and it is based upon your future. And, and they are happy to invest their time and their energy uh, in everything that's coming in your future. Their focus in their relationship with you is future-oriented. And what I think you have to do is to invest the majority of your time with your tomorrow people, particularly if you are interested in moving your life forward. There may be individuals who are okay with today, and if you are in that season of your life where you just want to kind of live for today, uh, then I think you place the emphasis on your today people. But if you are at a place in your life where you're still really about self-improvement, you still have goals and dreams that you are pushing to accomplish, uh, you really believe that iron sharpens iron and you really want to surround yourself with people that are going to help push you and propel you forward, then uh, the bulk of your attention and energy has got to be spent with your tomorrow people and not yesterday or today people. What you don't share much in your book is about your own self and and maybe share with us and our listeners where you've benefited from the right relationship give us an example well one of the uh, relationships that is near and dear to my heart is the relationship with the individual that brought my wife and I to Birmingham uh, you know we live in Birmingham and I'm not from Birmingham I didn't grow up here but uh, in a relationship that I developed through my consulting firm I met a gentleman who was a leader in the city, uh, and it was through that relationship that uh, our entire church, our our ministry, and a lot of what I'm doing today flourished. And that's a prime example of what I talk about in the book, that the world revolves around relationships and that the right relationships can help move you forward and even help unlock your destiny. If you would have told me 25 years ago that I'd be in Birmingham, I would have called you a liar. Because Birmingham just it wasn't even on my radar screen. Um, I, I never even imagined that I would be in this city. It just was completely out of the realm of my imagination. But I forged a relationship with an individual that God used uh, to move us from South Florida uh, and to come to Birmingham. And it was through that relationship that we started the ministry. And really, a lot of all of the things that are kind of uh, flourishing in my life started through that. And so I'm grateful. He's still in my life to this day. He's a retired leader in the city, and he's a member of our church, and we have a great relationship to this day, but God used him for that. And And he is one of your tomorrow people? He is a tomorrow person. God used him uh, as a tomorrow person because I was thinking about today, and I had a concept of what I thought my tomorrow was going to look like, but I had absolutely no idea that it was going to, in a concrete fashion, involve Birmingham and involve many of the things that are indispensable to my life now. 
but all of that came through a person, which is one of the things that's so important for uh, people to understand when they read my book. I really believe that. I really believe that whenever God does anything in the world, he does it through a person. And I think historically and contemporarily, we have so much proof of that. And that's a great example of it even in my own life. Now, you say in your book, relational health grows on mutual benefit. But let me add a little twist to it now. Um, we all have friends. We all have, you know, we're, we're all married or whatever. And, and we, in my example, I have a couple um, that I go out with in, in a group. So there are about, you know, six, seven couples that go out for dinner once every few weeks or whatever. This particular couple constantly is one of those sort of couples that are constantly displaying um, PDA, public display of affection. They haven't been, uh, it's not like they've been married for a year or so. They've been married for, I think, 20 years. And it's always, you know, trying to make out that they are the perfect couple, um, holding hands, and, and just generally you feel like you're with a bunch of teenagers. Right. Now, one thing I do notice about this couple is they make friends with other couples whose marriages are in trouble. And I get the feeling that this makes this couple feel superior. Right. They also have friends who are economically lower in status right. so that they feel better again. Now, is this a healthy attitude to have? Because on one end, you have a couple that's feeling superior. Right. But I guess the other couples who are weaker have a feeling of acceptance in their presence. They sort of moved up a step. Right. Um, I, I, I can't. I've told my wife, I, I can't do this because I'm not going to be uh, accepted for my weaknesses. That's not going to ever define me. I want to be accepted for my success. And because I have more than this couple, um, they will not form a close relationship with me because then they feel insecure Right. because I have more than them. Right. So am I right in thinking like that? I actually think you, do, you are right. I agree with you on this. I, I think that while those interactions happen all the time, and I see them play out all the time, because there's a real tendency for some people to evaluate ourselves amongst others. Uh, I think it's unfortunate. Uh, the Bible is very clear that we should not do that, because often the, the, the stick that we use to measure ourselves is fallible. Uh, but I think your point is spot on, because that's not a healthy relationship. It is parasitic. It's problematic. Uh, it's not mutually beneficial. It's ego-stroking, basically. It's very much so. You took the words right out of my mouth. I was just getting ready to say that. Because of because it's really couched in this notion of ego-stroking, it, 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 it fails to meet the mutual benefit criteria that I talk about in the book. And there is no possibility of it being synergistic, meaning it's not going to add value to your life. You know, those kinds of interactions like you talked about, how are they going to help you move forward in the things that are important to you? And you can't answer that question, which is why you've chosen to not really be a part of that interaction. Besides, the other component that's really important is that level of acceptance and that level of you feeling good about who you are needs to come from you first. It shouldn't come from anybody outside of that. And so that's problematic in and of itself, too. I also tell my wife that, you know what, the way things are going with this particular crowd, we're in danger of becoming what I call social prostitutes. 
And, and um, yes. well, first of all, you know, I'm in the company of semi-delusional idiots with a misguided sense of self-worth. That's number right. one. Number two, it's exactly like social prostitution. You go out, you have a meal, uh, you talk nonsense, you pay your share, and then you come home. For me, the most intellectual thing was reading the menu. Right. Uh, there was nothing meaningful when I came back. No, you you know what? That, that is amazing. I love that social prostitution. I may have to... Uh, use that in co-opted. You heard it first on the VIP Jaswell report. Exactly. But no, I I think you're spot on. I think that this notion of social prostitution is what a lot of individuals are engaged in, which in in my words is what parasitic relationships look like. There is no added value. And if there's no added value, there is no nourishment from uh, the relationship. And so often what we end up doing is we connect with those kinds of relationships and we are depleted. So after the night is over, you know, there was no intellectual stimulation, there was no value add, and you walk away feeling like, why did I even waste my time with this? No, because until I read your book, I used to think, you know what, I'm going to be lonely. I'm going to be alone in terms of it's just me and my wife. Right. Uh, I'll have to hide your book a little more. Um, <laughs> and and But after reading your book, I actually felt, you know what, the way I've been thinking through my gut is what you've been writing in your book. That's where I said, you know, it actually helped increase my self-confidence that, you know what, I'm not alone in thinking like this. There's someone like you out there who's sort of reinforcing that it's okay. Oh, it very much is, and that's why this book is a must-read for everybody because there's there's this space that the book occupies that a lot of individuals, you and myself and so many others, uh, even as I've gotten feedback from people around the world reading the book, you know, we've seen these things and we've wondered, now, this can't be healthy. Uh, but we've never really had anything to definitively say, okay, this is not healthy, this is healthy, consider this, avoid that. And in many ways, that's what the people factor does. And so you're right. Uh, it's not just a knee-jerk reaction. It's not just something that's been ruminating in your gut. That kind of relationship is unhealthy, and it's unproductive. And the truth is we don't have time for that. Time is the most precious commodity. And why would you give the best of yourself and the best of your time that you're never going to get back to the wrong kinds of people? Here's another thing I'm noticing. Let's take it away from the socializing. Let's just bring it down to married couples sure. uh, in isolation. Um, you, you talk about relationship health surviving on mutual benefit. Um, does that mean it has to be quantifiable? Because I'm not seeing a lot of love around these days with a lot of couples. Um, You know, the love's gone, but for the children's sake or for cultural values or for convenience or for economics, the partnership survives because there's some sense of obligation. Uh, It seems couples now tolerate each other. uh, And and for most part in their lives, there's a separate existence, albeit with joint duties. Yep. You know, one earns, one does something, both earn or whatever. Um, And there are many out there who have this existence, and it seems to be becoming the norm. What's your guidance on this? Well, the mutual benefit or the mutuality that I talk about in the book uh, definitely encourages people to make it quantifiable. I think you're right. I think that there are a lot of couples that are just existing. They're not thriving. Uh, or if, uh, another way to say it is they're surviving, they're not thriving. And it's because we don't quantify what is the value add that I need. Now, what's interesting is a lot of people know it, which is why they say, okay, I'll I'll exist in this for the sake of the kids, 
but I've got to go get these other needs met elsewhere because they understand that there's some boxes that that absolutely have to be checked in their life. What has to happen, though, is that those boxes that you perceive need to be checked needs to be quantified uh, in very tangible ways with your spouse. That's the only way that you will have the possibility to move from the surviving mode to the actual thriving mode because a lot of times people just don't know. Mm-hmm. I think the worst thing that you can do, and this happens with a lot of couples, is to give someone what you think they need or what they used to need, which is why a lot of couples are just existing because as we grow and as we evolve, our needs change. But if I don't specify what they are, if I don't quantify what they are, then I rob you, first of all, of the ability to meet it. But if I also don't quantify it and specify it, uh, then I automatically put the relationship in a space where the best we can do is to just survive and hang on and exist instead of it being all that it really could be. So this notion of mutuality and the benefit and the value that a relationship has to add, it definitely needs to be quantifiable because it may mean something for you and it may mean something totally different from your spouse. Do you think the marriage vows mean anything in this generation? I think they should. I don't think that they mean what they used to mean to our parents and the generation before them. Mm -hmm. I think we live in a world now where because of social media, because of instant gratification, because, you know, social media tells us that friendship is just a click away. I think what we've lost, Vip, is I think we've lost the work ethic that went along with till death do us part. I think there are couples that still say that at the altar when they uh, jump the broom, however they go through getting married, uh, whatever their custom suggests. And I think they say till death do us part, but I think what we've lost is the work ethic that comes with it. And one of the things that I think people have got to understand today is that the grass will always be greener on the side that you water. And what we've lost is the desire to water it. Because the grass will always be greener on the side that you water. Exactly. And what that means literally is if you stop watering that grass, if you stop working at it, you know, then it, it is going to wilt, it is going to be brown. And a lot of times what we do is we stand on the side of brown grass and we romanticize and fall in love with the grass on the other side of the fence because it looks prettier and we say we want that, but what we don't understand is that it took something for that to become that. And so we have lost that work ethic, and I hope that we can reclaim it. Relationships uh, are not easy. Well, I don't think we will in this generation. I think uh, we're sort of too old now, but I hope in the, in the new generation that happens. Yeah, and I, and I agree with you, and I, I hope that the people factor will really add some value to, to people being able to do that better. Now, as people grow apart but stay together, uh, let's talk about secrets in a relationship. Sure. Uh, you talk about not having secrets in a relationship. My point to you is, aren't some secrets essential to keeping or forming a relationship? And I'm going to give you my example. I used to date this young lady when, or I used to date this lady when, in my young days. Sure. Very attractive lady, great personality, um, everything you'd want her to be. Um, we finally spent a night together and I discovered she had a flatulence problem. I thought I'd discovered one of America's natural gas reserves. I mean, the woman wouldn't stop. I thought, you know, 
She just released a demon again. Um, I had to put out my cigarette just in case it was a fire hazard. But she said something that resonated with me. Wow. And that was that um, if I didn't get to know her as a person, this secret she had might have prevented me from getting to value her as a person. Right. And, and she was right. Yeah, and I do agree with you in that regard. I'm glad you brought this up because that's a big, that's a big challenge uh, for some individuals who've read the book. In fact, a lot of the feedback that I get, that's probably one of the biggest questions. You know, are you saying that we can't keep any secrets? And I'm glad that I can add some value to the conversation and really draw some lines of distinction here because what I'm talking about in the book are really the current and ongoing secrets of our lives that will threaten the integrity and the transparency that trust demands in any relationship. I'm not necessarily talking about certain things in our past that are not as important to bring up. It's kind of like the conversation that a lot of couples have when they start saying, okay, well, how many, how many people have you dated in the past? Right. Uh, and how many, or how many people have you been intimate with in the past? Uh, that's not necessarily germane for today and tomorrow because then you end up bringing all kinds of skeletons out that sometimes will rob uh, the possibility of what you're trying to develop. And so, yeah, I'm not necessarily talking about secrets that are in your past that are not important to bring up because when you do that, then you do rob the individual, even yourself, from the opportunity to really get to know them for who they are and to expose is, is there a possibility here for something uh, to develop between us? So, yeah, I'm really speaking about, when I talk about secrets, I'm really pointing people to the current secrets that we often try to hide or the ongoing secrets that, because we want to address them, run the threat of derailing our life. Mm-hmm. And what what the world has shown, whether it's historically or contemporarily, is it's those current or ongoing secrets that always end up coming out. And when they come out, they do much more harm than good. From secrets? A lot of of people have been hurt because of it, unnecessarily. Yeah, that's very true. Um, From secrets to blessings in disguise, you have an interesting section on that, on being able to identify your blessing in disguise. What does that mean? A lot of times, some of the things that we really want are right in front of us, we just don't know it. Mm-hmm. You know, my wife is one of my blessings in disguise. You, you talked a moment, Zip, about the person. Well, that's what I tell my wife all the time. Yeah, you know, and I and I did. I was guilty of the same thing. I had an idea in my mind of who I wanted to marry, what she needed to look like, uh, from skin complexion to length of hair. It was very shallow, very shallow. Uh, and my wife and I were the best of friends. And my wife, in many ways, put up with, you know, my ruminating about, oh, I want this, I want that, and I want this. And my wife, as my friend, also put up with me dating several different individuals. Uh, And uh, the whole time, the person that I really needed and wanted in my life was right in front of me, and and I almost didn't see it. You know, I I thank God that I did, uh, and I was able to kind of right the ship before I crashed my life. But that often happens in so many other ways in the lives of people that often our blessing is right in front of us, but it is in disguise. And one of the things that I try to do in the book is to help people to kind of remove the mask so that they can see their blessing for what it really is and to pay attention to it and grab hold of it and not squander it. 
Well, in your book, there's not much about you, but there was this little section about how your father's infidelity yeah. impacted your mother and brought her pain. Oh, yeah. Now, in a twisted sort of way, do you think that was a blessing in disguise because it eventually made you a pastor, it made you closer to God, it effectively made you who you are today? You know, and I'm glad you said that, it is a blessing in disguise in a twisted kind of way. I grew up with a lot of pain because my father was never there. Um, I grew up bitter because my friends had their dads in their lives and I wanted to, you know, be like them. I wanted my dad to teach me how to throw a football and to come to my basketball games, and, and he just didn't. But in a twisted sort of way, out of that pain has given me a greater sense of purpose about being a father to my own children. You know, out of uh, the pain that my mother carried for, you know, much of her life, because my mother and father were high school sweethearts. They were college sweethearts and got married right out of college. And so for much of my mother's life, she carried the pain and the discomfort because of what my father did to her with the infidelity. But what that's done for me in a twisted sort of way is it's given me a greater sense of, of appreciation for marriage. It's made me want to be a better man. And I think that my wife benefits from it. I know that my children do. You know, the mere fact that I have a son uh, moves me in tremendous ways because I have the opportunity to be to him what I always wished my father was to me. And so often, in a weird sort of way, sometimes our blessings in disguise come out of some of the most painful experiences in our life. If we handle them right, and if we grow through them and learn from them, we can be better because of them. Here's one thing I found that was a little, um, I was struggling with in my mind. And I think it's one of the pro one of the reasons we have problems in today's relationships. You know, in the in the beginning of the show, I mentioned that in today's world, we're encouraged to grow and develop, whether it's getting healthier, getting more educated, finding our inner peace, etc., and all that. Um, now, here's where I'm going with this. As we develop, we change. So what I was 20 years ago is different from who I am 20 years on. Right. The people who associated with me 20 years ago will find me a different person now because I've moved in a different direction. Exactly. In in marriages, doesn't that threaten those relationships? Because uh, I have people around me now who see me as a different person. Um, everyone around us is constantly evolving. So the people they married are not the same ones they married in the past. Exactly. Does self-development put further pressure on relationships and changing ourselves in the process? Couldn't that be dangerous for such relationships? Oh, absolutely, which is why uh, the book is so necessary now more than ever because what we've often done is just assume that the skills that we had 25 years ago that led us to get married are the same skills that we need now that we're totally different people in our marriage and that's not true a lot of marriages fail because I am not the same person now that I was when we got married we've grown life grows us and life changes us the uh, ups and downs of life, the goods and the bads. And so we are always evolving in order, and in order to do those relationships well and even to maintain the relationships that in the past used to be beneficial to us, our skill and knowledge of how to handle those relationships also have to evolve. And so you're absolutely right. The inability to have those skills and to understand how to navigate through it places greater stress and pressure 
on those relationships, and a lot of relationships crash and burn because we just never develop what I call in the book your relational IQ. But, you know, um, I'm being very sincere when I say this. I could be talking to you all day. Um, But we're coming to the end of the show. Where can we get the book? Well, you can get the book anywhere that books are sold at any bookstore. You can also go out to my website, vanmoody.com. Thank you very much, Pastor Van. This has been a great time, man. I enjoy being with you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. Your comments and your followers are so very welcome on my Twitter account at Vip Jaswal and my Facebook page. Also, let me know what you think about today's show. A special shout-out of thanks to my dream team, William Sanchez and Rick Buser. I'll be back next Sunday at 6 p.m. Eastern with more fascinating stories that fill our lives with the inspiration and information we so need to kickstart the week. I wish you a wonderful evening tonight with your family and loved ones. And until next Sunday, have a productive and a happy week ahead.